Let's pray. Father, thank you for tonight. Pray, Lord, for clarity of thought, clarity of expression, hearts to receive, hearts to understand. Pray, God, that you would grip our hearts and that you do something profound in our midst. In Jesus' name. This is the last sermon of this decade. Of this whole decade. Some of us have decayed more than others. But we're, we're continuing with the series of Heroes of the Faith. I'm extremely tinny in my own ears. Um, Heroes of the Faith in Hebrews. And I'm going to be speaking about Jacob. Um, I'm going to be speaking about Jacob. Jacob is, a, is an interesting character. He's the most unlikely hero of the faith. Yeah, I'm going to be dealing with Jacob. Jacob's a very unusual character as far as heroes of the faith are concerned because there's so much that he did that doesn't line up with what we'd imagine a hero of the faith would look like. Um, to say that he was something of a skabango was to would be to put it mildly. And we're going to explore tonight how it is that notwithstanding his waywardness in some respects, he still makes it into the, the, the hall of fame of of faith in Hebrews 11. It's at this time of the year that we start thinking of vision for the new year and indeed for the new decade. Uh, for the sake of my children, I'm not going to refer to that as 2020 vision. Um, but, or, 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 or the whole new year, new me thing, because that's not real. The, the new year is going to have the, the old you in it. Unfortunately, in some respects, very fortunately in others, but, but we carry ourselves into the new year. There is one thing that, that we can change going into the new year, though, because I'm going to be going after two things tonight. The first is, whatever you set your heart on, you're going to find every time. Whatever you set your heart on, you will find. Secondly, it is all but inevitable that we will stumble. It is all but inevitable that we will stumble. If you do stumble, at least stumble towards the light. So those are the two big ideas we're going to go after tonight. Um, and we're going to pick it up with this thought. I am so grateful that we did not have social media when I was growing up. The crazy, stupid stuff that I did in my youth that is not immortalized on Instagram or, 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 uh, or any of the other social media platforms, I'm profoundly grateful for. Profoundly grateful for. Yeah, not so? Um, now, the Bible is not written like an Instagram story or a Facebook story. We don't get to edit, or, or, or those who participate in the Bible didn't get to edit the best version of themselves to present to the world. The Bible presents the story, the narrative, of those with whom God engaged, warts and all. There's a whole lot here, which I'm sure Jacob would rather not have declared to all of humanity for all ages to come. When we look at Facebook stories, when we look at Instagram stories, we see the smiling faces on beaches. We don't get to see the three meltdowns, four tantrums, broken tire, and maxed out credit card. 
That's not, not something we get exposed to. We get the, the, the edited best version, which often bears little, reality, little, little semblance to reality. The Bible's not like that. The narrative of Jacob in Genesis, which we're going to have a look at, is a warts and all behind-the-scenes look at the ugliness of human nature laid bare and God's patient dealing with humanity in the face of our own frailty. Before we dive into Genesis, I'd like to tie down a few key ideas that will inform the journey. The first question is this. What is faith? Any ideas? Most of us have some idea of what faith is. Trust. Yeah, that's, a, that's, that's exactly right. Hebrews 11 verse 1 says this. Now faith, or pistis, literally, that's what it is, uh, which means trusting. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. The word assurance there is, is an interesting word. It's hypostasis. It means that which stands under the thing which supports and hold up, holds up the thing which is being supported. It's like the foundation of a house. Assurance is the thing on which you build the house. So, so faith is like, it's like a foundation on which everything else is built. It also means conviction, and um, it, it also means um, assurance. It's something, it's something really solid. It's something on which everything else rests. Hypostasis. Is, is where we get the expression, which you'll find in the theology books, hypostatic union. The hypostatic union is an expression of Jesus being both fully God and fully man. It's this fully Godness that undergirds, that is the foundation for all else that flows, his fully manness. It's the hypostatic union. So assurance is a big deal. In Greek business documents, it would also mean title deed. If you buy a house and and you get the title deeds, and everybody comes to you and says, you don't own that house, and you show them the title deed, and you say, look whose name appears on there next to the bank. Look whose name appears there. That's proof, that's evidence, beyond any possible doubt, that you're the owner of that property. So faith is the title deed of the hope that we possess. Faith is the thing that we present to demonstrate that even though you can't see the house in which I live, the house I own, it's mine. It's, it's really quite substantial. So that's what faith is. There's another element to faith which sometimes we miss. It's in Hebrews 4, verses 1 to 3. I'm going to explore this a little bit. Therefore, writes Paul, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as them, the them is referring to the Israelites, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. I'm going to repeat that because I've read this passage many times over, over my life. For the first time ever in preparing for the sermon, I read it in a slightly different way. For God, good news came to us, so good news is the gospel, came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them. Why not? Because they were not united by faith with those who listened. 
See, we think of faith as a solo mission. This text says that, that the gospel did not benefit those who listened but didn't become joined to those who believed. In other words, who didn't become part of a community of faith. I've never read it that way before, but that's actually what it says. They were not united by faith with those who listened. So faith is not something we work out on our own. It's something we work out in community. Because there are days when my faith will fail, and I need you. And there are days that your faith will fail, and you're going to need me. So faith is not, is not the Lone Ranger. It's a community of people stumbling towards the light together. That's the background. Right, Genesis 25. Please turn there if you've got your Bible or an app. Genesis 25, verse 22. Just a little bit of context for this. God meets Abraham. He becomes Abraham. Um, he is given the child of promise, Isaac. He's given many incredible promises. Isaac then... Um, is, is advanced in age. He, he prays that his wife would uh, fall pregnant, and she falls pregnant. Her name is Rebecca. And in her pregnancy, there are twins. And this is the description of what happens while she's pregnant. The children struggled together within her, and she said, if, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger. This is, this is quite a profound thing. So, so she's pregnant, she feels there's this tussle within her. She goes to God and says, what's up? And God speaks to her and says, there are two nations in you. And there's something unusual about these two nations within you. Uh, two peoples within you shall be divided, which, which is an anticipation of, of, of um, unhappiness between them, of division. And one will be stronger than the other. The, the older shall serve the younger. Now, that, that is complete contrast to how many ancient Middle Eastern custom would work. You would always have the younger serving the older. For, for it to be in any other way would be an unusual thing. And then the story starts. The story of Jacob in Genesis is a narrative about the sovereignty of God and the certainty of his purposes. So, so Rebecca receives this word, and it's a very clear word, and God says certain things are going to happen. And they don't happen the way you'd expect them to at all. God told Rebekah, Isaac's wife, that there would be conflict between the twins they would bear and a difference in strength between them. As the story unfolds, we discover that what God views as strength is quite different to our views on the subject. Genesis 25, verse 24 to 28. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau, which, which is similar to red. It's, it's a similar Hebrew word. Afterwards, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. 
So his name was called Jacob. Jacob means usurper um, or, or one who takes the rightful place of another. Uh, there's a, there's a Hebrew idiom, to, to grab somebody by the heel, to take somebody by the heel, means to deceive them. So right at the beginning of the story, we, we see that God is setting something up that Jacob's relationship with his brother is not going to be a happy one. Isaac was 60 years old when she, Rebekah, bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Why did Isaac love Esau? Because he ate of his game. Bear that in mind, we're going to return to that. On the face of it, Esau was the strong one, the hunter, the kind of guy who wears camo hot pants and takes out charging buffalo with a toothpick and a rubber band. You know that guy? Like, where's my bow? That guy. And, and you'd imagine that he's the strong one, right? The hairs on his chest have hairs on their chest. That guy. Jacob, on the other hand, is quiet and intense. More intense than a bedridden Bedouin. Isaac loved Esau because Esau got him the best venison. He satisfied Isaac's appetites. This is a clue about what is to come. In Genesis 25, verses 29 to 34, we read this. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, Let me eat some of that red stew, for I'm exhausted. Therefore his name is called Edom, also red. Jacob said, Sell me your birthright now. So, so these two guys didn't get on. Jacob's cooking vegetable stew with lentils. Um, Esau comes in, he's hungry, he's tired, maybe he didn't have a good hunt, and he says, give me some of that stew. He says, not a chance. Give me your birthright. And that's a big deal in Hebrew culture. That's a very big deal, because as the eldest, he had a double portion. That meant that he would inherit two-thirds of, of um, his father's inheritance, his estate, <clears throat> and the remaining third would go to whoever else was around. In this case, Jacob and, and Jacob would share with his mother. So Esau says in response, I'm about to die. It's a little dramatic. He's tired and hungry. I'm about to die. What use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew and ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Jacob understood something, that the birthright was really important. So the opposite of love isn't hate, it's indifference. Um, to quote the Lumineers, the, the birthright was so important, and yet Esau said, you know, I'm prepared to exchange this for a vegetable stew and a bit of bread. There wasn't even meat in it. And he's a hunter, for goodness sakes. This is like, I don't know, the guy at the bry saying, you know, I'll, I'll exchange my birthright for, for, a, for a salad. It's just unthinkable. And part of that inheritance was the promises of God that, that God had given to, to Isaac 
and to Abraham before him, that, that all of the nations would be blessed through his offspring. And as Paul points out, the offspring is singular, it's Jesus. The, the great promises given to Isaac and, and then to his offspring was that a mighty nation would rise up from Isaac's offspring that couldn't be counted and that among them would be the Messiah who would bless the entire world. And Esau said to that, I'd rather have vegetable stew. Jacob, although he's a con artist, was prepared to do whatever it took to get that. And it seems that God honored that. One point I'd like to point out, one point I'd like to make is that, that Esau was not going to die. He was tired and he was hungry. And we lose perspective of reality when we're tired and hungry. Have you ever noticed that you're much more prone to do really, really stupid things when you're tired and hungry? We run the risk of giving in to, this, to some appetite, whether it's food or alcohol or sexual temptation or drugs or wealth in exchange for something of eternal value. Don't make big decisions when you're tired or hungry. Have a rest, because you're reminding yourself that you're not God. Have something to eat, and then think clearly. I often think about this. Um, have you ever ridden a mountain bike? Uh, the key to not dying on a mountain bike is very simple. Don't look at what's in front of the tire. Look five meters ahead. It is the craziest thing. If you look five meters ahead, and you keep your eyes five meters ahead, your body and your bike will find their way. If you look at what's in front of the tire, you fall every time. In fact, if you focus on an obstacle to come, I've got a, there's a, there's a bike coach here, you can agree with me. Um, if there's an obstacle or danger, if, there's a, if there's, there's a cliff, and you're riding towards the cliff, if you want to fall off the cliff, just look towards it. It's called the magic elastic effect. The bike is drawn towards whatever you're looking at, whatever you're focused on. That's what you find. And faith is a bit like that. Whatever you set your heart and your mind on, that's what you're going to find. If it's the source of temptation, you're going to find that. If it's God and faith and, and something of eternal value as opposed to a vegetable soup that is going to satisfy for a very short period a carnal appetite, which is not evil in itself, it's just what you exchange for it. In the book of Romans, you'll see that there's a series of, of what John Piper calls dark exchanges where, 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 where humanity exchanges the glory of God for something of lesser value, and everything is of lesser value. Anyway, that's a, that's a rabbit hole I'm not going to go down tonight. Hebrews uses this exchange of the, the vegetable stew for the birthright as a cautionary tale in Hebrews 12, verse 15 to 17. Paul writes this, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Why many? Because faith is a, isn't a solo journey. Where we fall, we take others with us. Um, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected and found no chance to repent though he sought it with tears. So, instance number one, the, the warring twins, is that, that Esau gets conned into giving away his birthright. The second instance I'm going to look at is, um, is right near Isaac's death. 
Isaac draws near to death and has gone blind. He asks Esau to go shoot some game and make a delicious meal so that he can bless Esau. It's not at all unusual in, in the Middle East, ancient Middle East, for a dying father to bestow a, a special blessing on the offspring. And that, that, that blessing had enormous um, value and, and really was something very significant. Now, as we go through the story, which I'm going to summarize in a moment, remember that when the twins were in Rebecca's womb, God made a promise. And God said, the younger will serve the older. Sorry, the older will serve the younger, the other way around. And, and you'll see that, that, that um, Isaac actually tried to swap that around and was thwarted. You'll see it in a moment. So while Esau is hunting, Rebekah and Jacob hatch a plot to deceive Isaac into giving the blessing into, to Jacob instead of Esau. Jacob disguises himself by killing a goat. Rebekah makes the goat into a delicious meal. And, and um, Jacob puts the, the, the goat skin on his arms so that he's hairy like his brother. He must be a seriously hairy dude. Um, I'm nothing like that because hair doesn't grow on titanium. Look. <laughs> so, so anyway, Jacob is a smoothie. And so he, he wore his brother's clothes so at least he would smell a bit like Esau. And he tried to disguise his voice. And, and, and he draws near and he gives the meal that, that Rebecca prepares and says, here's the, the meal that you asked for and it's delicious. And Isaac says, well... The arms are hairy, like Esau, but the voice is Jacob's voice. He says, are you sure it's you? Are you sure it's Esau? And he says, no, it's Esau. And he smells his garments. He says, no, it is, I can smell it. I can smell um, the smells of the field, the smells of the earth. This is definitely Esau. And he pronounces a blessing. And he pronounces a blessing about the one he's blessing um, is going to be served by his brother. And he pronounces blessing in line with the promises of, of God to Abraham and the promises of God to Isaac. And, and, and Jacob now, as a usurper, one who's taken the other one's place, receives that blessing, which was always in the purposes of God to give. So let me be clear on this. Man's sinful intervention doesn't stop the purposes of God from being fulfilled. There's a sovereignty in the purposes of God that anticipates and works around our own frailty. That's a sobering thought. So, so Jacob gets the blessing of Esau, and, and Esau arrives and is very upset because he says, hey, where's my blessing? And his dad says, listen, I'm sorry, I've given it to your brother. He says, don't you have one blessing for me? He says, hey, I'll, I'll give you a blessing, but it's, it's nothing like the, the, the blessing I've given your brother. Brother, I'm sorry. And as you can imagine, Esau is quite upset about that. One of the points I'd like to make is that, that Isaac's physical blindness is a mirror of his spiritual blindness. That he, he looked to, to Jacob um, with less favor than the one that God had pronounced favor on. And, and he looked to more favor with Esau, even though Esau wandered away from God. Um, because Esau satisfied his appetite, gave him decent meat. Esau actually became a, a problem to, to Rebekah and to, to Isaac to a lesser extent 
because he married a series of Hittite women, and, and they bugged the daylights out of his mother-in-law, which I think made the division even more difficult. But as, as I said, this, nothing about this is sanitized. It's warts and all. However, so you, you'd think, well, Jacob has conned his way into getting both the birthright and the blessing. That seems unfair. Although it lines up with the purposes of God. If there is one immutable principle in the universe, it's this. What you sow, you reap. You sow one seed, you get a whole, a whole harvest coming your way. And, and Jacob really suffered because he was conned by his uncle Laban. Now, I haven't got time to go into the details, but he, spends up, he, he winds up um, being conned into marrying the wrong daughter and, and spends 14 years, 14 years laboring for free to win the heart, uh, to win the hand of, of the woman he loved. Um, and wound up with two wives. So I'm told that marriage is a mystery. Marriage to one woman is a mystery. Marriage to two women is a bigger mystery. Not funny. Okay, I thought it was funny. There's one more aspect of Jacob's life which I'd like to explore before concluding. It's in Genesis 32, verses 24 to 31. So the context is this. Jacob and his brother have been apart for some time. Jacob is, is trying to figure out a way to, to make peace, but he's very worried. He's worried that his, his brother's going to kill him and all of his children and his wives, and he's, he's trying to make a plan, and, and this happens. Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, so that they wrestled all night, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. See, Jacob relentlessly pursued blessing, absolutely relentlessly. Whatever it took, whether it was conning people, <laughs> which is not ideal. Please don't take that as a great example. But, but the heart behind it is the important thing. He was... He was absolutely ruthless in the pursuit of God's blessing, which is why I think he made it into to the list of heroes in Hebrews 11. Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he, the man with whom he was wrestling, said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob, the usurper. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask me my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I've seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Peniel, limping because of his hip. So Jacob, the usurper, becomes Israel, which means he strives with God, but it also means he rules as God. Oh, that's a big thing. So, so because Jacob set his heart to being blessed at any cost, he, he strived with man, with his brother, but also with God, because I, I believe this to have been a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. He strived with God um, through the night to get the blessing, and he prevailed because he didn't lose. And I've recently been reading a book by Philip Yancey on prayer, and, and Yancey makes the point 
that God invites us to wrestle with him in prayer all the time. Throughout the Bible, he invites it. He's, come engage with me, engage, engage, engage. And, and I remember wrestling with my daughters, especially Zoe, um, when they were very little. And it's, it's not like it was an even match. I, I could have squashed them. <laughs> but that wasn't the point. They were learning. And they were testing their strength. And they were engaging. Um, and I'd get attacked when I got home. and said, more rough games, you know. So he wrestled with God and got a blessing from him, and God honored him and gave him the new name. It is a great encouragement to me that in the succeeding centuries, where God through his prophets speaks to the nation of Israel, sometimes he says Israel, but sometimes he says Jacob. Sometimes he calls the nation of Israel Jacob. Why is that important? It's a recognition that sometimes we live in the space between usurper and the one who strives with God and with man who prevails. Sometimes we live in that gray space, and we're not quite there yet. But it's okay. God's got his hand on us, and we're going to get there. Sometimes we do well, other times less so. The, the important thing is that when we stumble, we continue to stumble towards the light. And when we fall down, we get up, get our bearings, and get going again. And like Jacob, when we rise... The way that we walk in the flesh is forever altered. God touched him on the, on the hip socket, and he never walked in the same way again. And so it is when we wrestle with God, when we engage with him, when we, when we strive with him and do not give up, the way we walk in the flesh changes. We become different. And people should be able to tell by the way that we walk that we've engaged with God. Um, remember that in Acts it says of, of Peter... And Stephen, I think, I'm open to correction on this, that, that the men marveled, but then they remembered they'd been with Jesus. They marveled that, that these simple folk, these uneducated folk, spoke with such authority, but then they remembered they'd been with Jesus. So in conclusion, what we set our hearts on, we prioritize. What we set as our desire for the next decade is what we will get. Jacob, a scallywag, skabanga, use a technical term, uh, set his heart on getting the blessing of God at any cost. And that's what he got. He could have made it easy on himself by not being a scallywag, but, but the point is that he set his heart on, on God's purposes. God was not taken by surprise in this, and providentially weaved his failures into the rich tapestry of his purposes, not only for Jacob, but also for the nation of Israel, and ultimately for the Messiah and for us. So often we are frustrated and demotivated because we set our hearts too low. C.S. Lewis wrote this, Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there's such a thing as water. Men so significant that it scares us witless. That if God does not pitch up and find us in it, we are done for. Anything less than that is too small. Let us not settle for vegetable stew when 
participation in the adventure of serving a God without limit is in the offering, with treasures not only now but also in eternity available to us. The thing about the heroes of the faith in Hebrews is that not one of them saw the fulfillment of the promises in their own lifetime, not one. And so it is with us. If we set our hearts on that which is eternal, that which is bigger than ourselves, that which has impact for, for generations to come, we may not see it in this, in this lifetime. But the generations to follow will. That's both our burden and our great privilege. That what we do here echoes not only in eternity, but here for the next generations to follow. I'm, I'm starting to reach the age now um, where you start looking back sometimes a little bit more than forward. And, and I'm, 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 I've come to realize that, that really we've got to so well. Time's short. It's not promised to anyone. And we've got to make it count. And, and I believe as we set our hearts towards God, as we set our hearts towards things that are not simply transient and evanescent and, and ephemeral and, and immediate, those things, that, that was a lot of big words, sorry. Um, <laughs> as we set our hearts on things that are more, more than just our appetites, we're going to set up the generations to follow for, for profound success and make an impact for eternity. Amen. Amen. Guys, that's it.